Well, hello again. It was so nice to sing some of those old favorites. Those songs always bring me into the Christmas mood. And speaking of, I want to check in with you first and foremost. How was your Christmas? Was it, was it everything you wanted it to be? Did you get to see family and friends? Did you get the presents you wanted? Or was it um, not everything that you had hoped it would be? Did it, did it fall short of your hopes, your expectations? I ask because I feel like I find in myself lately, and I think I see it around a lot, that I think, believe it or not, we put too much of a burden on Christmas these days. I, I think uh, for myself, it goes back to, I, I remember what Christmas was like when I was a kid, how it felt like just the whole season was magical. When, when I think back on it now, I, I feel like there was always tinkling music around and snow glittering and falling around me everywhere I went for the entire month of December. And what happens to me as a grown-up is I, I go through November and December and I'm anticipating Christmas and I'm building it up and there's all of this stress and planning and work involved. Got to get the lights up and the tree set up and, and things decorated and presents bought. And this year you have to do it earlier because the supply chain's got everything all messed up. And then you got to plan the gatherings and some people in your family are speaking to other people or they're not and, and you're trying to navigate all this messiness and the whole time I'm thinking, but then we're going to get to Christmas and it's going to be so worth it. And I don't I don't know about you, but I get to Christmas and it feels a, bit, a little bit like a letdown. I'm like, this is it? This is what we spent all of the time working towards? You know, the, the presents are unwrapped, the kids have already moved on, we, we've had the big feast and now we're sitting around and watching some football and waiting for the magic to somehow begin. And I think that that maps not only to our Christmas experience, but to a lot of experiences in our life, that we've got this thing that's so big and, and we put so much burden on it to, to fulfill us, to meet us where we are, to bring us to the throne room of God. And it, it sometimes, in fact, I would say often leaves us falling short. And what I'll say is I don't think that's unique to Christmas. I've experienced this throughout my own life. In fact, there's even a term for it. It's called a mountaintop experience. Mountaintop experience is when you, you do something like you, you go on a, on a mission trip and, and you just feel like for that whole week or couple of weeks, you're connected with God and, and you're, you're serving people and, and you're seeing uh, God's goodness all around. You're feeling the power of the Holy Spirit. And then, then you come back home and, and life just goes back to normal. And that, that connection with God just fades away. It almost leaves you wondering, was it real or was it just something you, you made up in the enthusiasm of the moment? And these mountaintop experiences, they're, they're so good and they're important and they're valuable, but, but there's another piece of them that we have to, to make sure we include and understand that go with them, which is the moments after the mountaintop moments, the moments of silence. You see, this whole series, we've been talking about the different ways that God is with us. And, and there, God is with us in, in the gardens and the good times. He's with us in the wilderness. Uh, he's with us uh, in, in community and gatherings with people, like when you have a bunch of people around a Christmas feast. He's with us when we're going through struggles and we're fighting with people. God is also with us in these quiet moments after the big moments after the pomp and circumstance, after the family gathering, all those things where we expect God to be. We expect him to be at these Christmas celebrations, this wonderfully moving service. And then there's this aftermath. Is God with us even in the moments of silence after the big mountaintop moments? And so as we reflect on that today and think about it, 
you're not gonna be surprised to hear this from me, God's people have gone through this before. In fact, there's a historical account in the Bible that talks about this kind of thing, and that's where I wanna go and, and then see how it applies to us today. The story is from 1 Kings, and, and it's about one of God's prophets, a man named Elijah. Now, Elijah was in a rough spot. He was faithful to God at a time where the political climate was very much anti-people of faith. Some of you might be able to relate. It was a time where what was supposed to be God's kingdom, a place that honored and revered God, had turned away from his teachings. Even the political leaders were, were doing all sorts of nonsense, idolatry, unjust laws. Uh, and in the midst of all of it, good God-fearing people were persecuted, were, were driven out because no one wanted to hear the faithfulness uh, and, and the, the worthwhile, righteous living that, that God wants for his people. And so Elijah is this prophet at this time, a time where he sees corruption uh, and a disintegration of, of the kingdom all around him, and he's trying to be faithful to God, even as all of his supposed brothers and sisters in faith around him were falling away and were turning away towards all sorts of different things. And there's this great story where Elijah actually goes on a mountaintop, and he has this battle of the gods between him as the sole representative of the one true God and hundreds of the prophets of Baal. And Baal was kind of the leading contender for the anti-God. If you were gonna turn away from the one true God, Baal was the popular God of the time. He was the, the trending God. Uh, and so that's where the, the kings and queens of the time, uh, a lot of the religious leaders, they had all turned towards Baal and they were worshiping him instead of the one true God. And so Elijah calls them out, hundreds of prophets of Baal, and then just him by himself. And they have this showdown. Elijah actually gives them the, the, the stakes of the wager. He says, here's what we're going to do. We're gonna put um, these bulls on an altar. We're gonna build these big stone altars. We're gonna put a bull on, just like you would do in the normal sacrificial religious practice of the time. Uh, whichever gods you worshiped, the sacrifices all looked the same. You, you had this, these altars, you'd, you'd bring animals of some sort, you'd burn them as an offering heavenward to the gods, and that's what you would do. And so Elijah said, here's what we're going to do instead. Instead of us just putting an animal on and then we're gonna burn it and it's gonna go up like smoke to, to the heavens, we're gonna build an altar, we're gonna put animals on it, and then we're gonna ask God himself to light the sacrifice on fire. And we'll see whose God is real and more powerful. And, and so prophets of Baal, you can put your bull your, on, the, on the altar, and if, if Baal sends down lightning and fire and, and, and burns it up, then we'll know that Baal's the real God. And on the other hand, if I put my bull on an altar and, and, my, and my God sends down fire and lightning, then we'll know that the one true God is the true God. And just put yourself in that moment, I, I would never have the courage to do something like that, to, to assume that God's at my beck and call, to, to trust that in a moment of, of a standoff, that he's gonna show up in a powerful and amazing way. I mean, this is the stage that's getting set for a miraculous supernatural moment, right? I mean, this is so bold of Elijah, this is so brave, this is so confident in the relationship he has with God that he's willing to put God's reputation and his on the line. And so in a moment of generosity, but I think it was just good gamesmanship, Elijah said very graciously, you can go first. 
And so he let the prophets of Baal do all of their normal things, which were, were pretty gross. Like they, were, they would cut themselves because the, the blood would draw the attention of God. And they'd dance around the altar making noise, you know, trying to, try, all again, trying to attract the attention. And he let them go for days. He said, go ahead, try, 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 try. And keep, get, take another try, take another chance. And he just kept giving them opportunities and, and goading them and being sarcastic the whole time. And finally, after days, the prophets of Baal give up. There's no fire from heaven. Baal has not answered their cries. Nothing has happened. These bulls are just sitting there on the stone altar. Nothing's happening. And Elijah kind of checks in with them. And he says, all right, you guys done? Y'all good? You give up? Okay, my turn. And so then Elijah, he puts his bull on the altar. He, he takes a bunch of jars of water and he douses the altar with as much water as he can, soaking wet. He doesn't want there to be any, uh, any accusation. He did something tricky or he had a torch hidden behind or a match ready to go. Douse the whole thing with water. And then none of the shenanigans, none of the cavorting around and cutting himself, he just simply and firmly and confidently prayed to God and said, God, if you are the one true God, Show your might on this day. Reveal to us that you are here and that you are powerful for your people. And instantly, fire came down from heaven, burned up the bull. Didn't just burn up the bull, dried up all the water. Elijah had made a trench of water. All the water evaporated. It was such a, a supernatural, larger-than-life fire. Dried up, burned up everything. Elijah wins the battle of the gods. Baal is proven to be a false idol. Our God is proven to be the one true God of the universe, mountaintop moment. But what's crazy is that's not the end of the story. See, the end of the story is the king and queen of Israel, people who should have been faithful followers of God, they were furious that Elijah had won this contest. They were furious that their preferred idol of Baal had been dishonored. And they put out a death warrant for Elijah. Basically, first one to see him gets to kill him. And so Elijah, rather than this being a moment of triumph, rather than this being the mountaintop experience where, where God came down in an obvious and supernatural way, and Elijah just coasts on that for the rest of his life, he tucks his coat between his legs and he runs. He runs into the wilderness to get away from the king and queen of the time. And what's so striking to me about that moment is everything about that story so far is everything I would want about my life. I would want to know so confidently that God is with me, that he'll show up when I ask him. I would want to have that kind of physical evidence that God is real, that this isn't just a pipe dream. This isn't some, some mass delusion that we've all talked ourselves into. Elijah got to experience something so powerful, this amazing battle of supremacy of gods where our God shows up and wins this mountaintop moment. And yet that mountaintop moment was not everything you would have assumed it would be. I would think that if I was in that moment that I would be confident forever. You know, the queen wants to make threats against me? Bring it on. What's she gonna do against a God that can send lightning bolts? He'll just strike her dead on the spot. Anyone that wants to get me, God will, you know, block the arrows, block the knives. God will protect me just like he did on the mountaintop. But that's not how it landed for Elijah. And I think there's something true about that. Elijah is, by all accounts, one of the most consistently faithful men of integrity in the Bible. So many leaders, as you know, if you've been following us through our Broken Heroes series, even 
godly leaders, people that were entrusted with the faith, the kingdom of God, had had huge flaws, made terrible choices, made mistakes, let their sins overcome them. And Elijah's one of the few that that didn't. He didn't have any moral failings. He, he didn't make bad choices. He, he faithfully represented God every part of his life. And yet even Elijah, as good and confident in God as he was, that he can call down fire from heaven, that mountaintop experience wasn't everything he wanted it to be. It didn't give him the confidence to charge forth with God at his side the way you'd think it would. And that's important for us today because when we have these experiences like Christmas that maybe don't live up to the burdens that we'd put on them, it's easy to think that we did something wrong or maybe God isn't showing up, that, that there's something wrong with this moment when in fact maybe we're just doing, we're, we're, we're experiencing exactly what we would expect to because even a moment like Elijah's was not sufficient to sustain him. So now I want to pick up the story uh, with what we're going to talk about today. See, that's not the end of Elijah's story either. It continues on in 1 Kings 19. And so Elijah, he's run away from this great victory. He's gone through the wilderness. Uh, and, um, uh, and, and that's, that's where we're going we're gonna to pick up. So when the king got home, he told the queen everything Elijah had done, including the way that he had won over the prophets of Baal. And so Jezebel sent this message to Elijah. May the gods strike me and even kill me, if by this time tomorrow I have not killed you. Elijah was afraid and fled for his life. He went to Beersheba, a town in Judah, and he left his servant there. Then he went on alone into the wilderness, traveling all day. He sat down under a solitary broom tree, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life, for I am no better than my ancestors who have already died. Then he lay down and slept under the broom tree. But as he was sleeping, an angel touched him and told him, get up and eat. He looked around, and there beside his head was some bread baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. Then the angel of the Lord came again and touched him and said, get up and eat some more, or the journey ahead will be too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and the food gave him enough strength to travel 40 days and 40 nights to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave where he spent the night. And then the Lord spoke to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah replied, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, and killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. Go out and stand before me on the mountain, the Lord told him. And as Elijah stood there, the Lord passed by, and a mighty windstorm hit the mountain. It was such a terrible blast that the rocks were torn loose, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, there was the sound of a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And a voice said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied again, I have zealously served the Lord God Almighty, but the people of Israel have broken their covenant with you, torn down your altars, killed every one of your prophets. I am the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. Then the Lord told him, go back the same way you came and travel to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive there, anoint Hazael to be king of Aram, then anoint Jehu, grandson of Nimshi, to be king of Israel. And this is important. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from the town of Abimola, to replace you as my prophet. 
Notice that the, the true end of the story is not what we would expect. We're so used to our sports movies and our, our war movies where the climax, the, the great moment, is when they win the big game, they w overcome the odds to win the battle, that there's this finish line climactic moment of exuberance and that's the end of the story. And that's not what we see in scripture that this great moment where Elijah wins this huge supernatural battle and should have all the confidence of God with him, that's not the end of the story and that's not what ultimately gives Elijah confidence. Instead, the Bible paints the story that the, the mountaintop moment was there simply to precede this much truer moment. That when Elijah felt alone, and you heard it multiple times, right? Everyone else is dead, I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. In that moment of solitude, that moment of despair and loneliness, that's when God showed up. And I love this picture that, that God, he, he can do and he does do powerful things. He doesn't just strike an altar in a, in a battle with the prophets of Baal. God, God brings wind and earthquakes and fire. But as powerful and mighty as those things are, they are not God. God is not with us in those forms, the forms of power, God was with Elijah in a whisper, a gentle whisper. And in that moment, Elijah didn't need the power of God. He didn't need God to, to fix everything, to wipe out all of his enemies. He just needed to know that God was with him. And the whisper was the way God showed him that. And there's something true about this. I see it in so many phases of life. Uh, science and sociology recognizes this too, that we need moments of silence to process, to connect, to heal. That part of why our bodies are designed to need to sleep uh, every day is because we've been doing all the things and, and now our brains have to take the time to sort through it all. We've got to recharge everything. Uh, and when we wake up the next morning, we, we, research shows over and over again that, that our mind and our body have done things. Our mind has processed the memories that we made before. It's come up with new connections and new insights. Our body has rejuvenated all of its levels, all the, all the things that were depleted in a day of energy before. Sleep was, is so important physiologically to us. But in the same way, we need these moments of silence after the big moments. So after the big Christmas feast and all the pomp and circumstance, we need that opportunity to pull back to withdraw, to be quiet, to be alone. Because it's in those moments that the spiritual processing happens. It's why when you do something big, like go on a mission trip, you, you need to take time at, at the end of it to come back and reflect and process and meditate on everything you went through so that you can figure out how to integrate that in your life moving forward. And if Christmas feels like it didn't quite bring to you everything that you had hoped it would, what I'd encourage you to do is recognize that God is maybe inviting you to connect with him in the silence. You see, I, I have to admit, I work very hard to banish all the silences from my life. I listen to podcasts in the car and while I go on my runs. I, I have music playing uh, in the shower. I, I do everything because when, when things get quiet, when I'm no longer able to distract myself, that's when things get real. That's when the anxieties come to the surface. That's when the, the hurting and broken relationships come back to my mind. That's when my fears for the future loom large. 
And so as a result, I keep my life as noisy as possible. I, I, I hope to find fulfillment and meaning in the big moments and in, in the big Christmas mountaintop experiences. But the fact is, I don't actually find fulfillment in those big moments. I'm more of an introvert myself, but where I, what I really find is that it's the silences after those moments. It's those times where I feel all alone, where my wife doesn't understand what I'm going through, my kids don't get it, my parents are in a different season, coworkers aren't living the life I'm living. It's those moments where no one understands what I'm going through, just like what Elijah complained to God. It's in those moments that if I am silent enough, if I turn off the distractions, I see that God has been with me all along. He's been whispering to me. Because a whisper is the most intimate and profound thing you can hear. A whisper only happens when you're close. You can shout into a megaphone all you want. People will hear you on the other side of a football field. But a whisper, they've got to be close to hear the whisper. And you have to be willing to, to not settle for the distractions, the pomp and the circumstance, the big affairs, the mountaintop experiences. You have to be willing to move through those, get to the moments of quiet, and see how God has actually been there all along, whispering, waiting for you to slow down enough, waiting for you to get quiet enough so that you can hear his whisper, his voice in your life. And what I promise you is this, that it's there. We go through seasons where we feel close to God or not close to God, where we have mountaintop experiences that should be great and, and times where we feel like God isn't, isn't anywhere near us in 100 miles. But what I, what I promise you is this, that he is so close to you that he is a whisper away. If you just won't drown it out, if you listen to it. And as we wrap up this Christmas season and this Christmas series that we're in, I, I want to turn to the very end of the Christmas story. One that maybe often doesn't get read at Christmas when we read the Christmas story. Uh, and even if it does, I think it's glossed over because it's so short. It's one verse. It comes from Luke chapter two, verse 19. And what it says is that this is after all the big stuff, right? Angels have appeared, shepherds have shown up, everyone's at the main, like this is the, the day where the advent calendar is done, right? Everybody's there that's gonna be there, right? All the sheep and the camels and uh, they're all there. The, and, and this picks up, the shepherds have gone back to the town to tell everyone what they've seen. The angels have returned to heaven. And then in verse 19, but Mary kept all of these things in her heart and she thought about them often. It's this beautiful and profound moment and, and Mary acquits herself so well in the story. We read about so many people who, who mess up, who, who push back against God, who don't understand what he's trying to do with them. And yet every, at every step, Mary recognizes so clearly what God is doing in her life. And I love this picture. This is our equivalent, right? Of the, the feast is eaten, the relatives have gone home, the presents are all opened, and now you're just kind of sitting around wondering what happened. And in that moment, Mary keeps all these things in her heart and she thought about them often. She pondered them deeply in her heart. And that is the picture not just of Christmas, but of our lives. That Mary, did, it was nice that she had these amazing evidences of God being with her in this Christmas moment. To have angels and shepherds and wise men, all of these things, uh, I'm sure went a long way towards being her mountaintop experience, towards showing, you know, proving that God shows up in big ways. 
but I think far more profound to her life and to her walk with God was that one verse at the end, that after the whole Christmas story is done, she quietly sits back and in the silence meditates on what God has done in her life and what he will continue to do in her life. And so I pray for you that you will not think that Christmas is over and done just because it's the 26th. The Christmas season isn't over officially till New Year's Day, and even then it technically goes till January 6th if you go by the church calendar. But I'd like to encourage you with this, that just because all the big moments of Christmas are over, the, the, the feasting and the gatherings and the presents, don't think that God's being with you is over. That in fact, it is in this time that you are invited to reflect, to meditate, to ponder, to see how God has been active and moving in your life this whole last month, to see how even if the Christmas experience itself left you feeling flat or empty afterwards, that that is merely your, your physical clue that God is waiting to do something next in you. And it won't be something large or magnificent for the world to see. It'll be a whisper. But in that whisper, you will find connection with God. You will hear again his identity for you. You will be reminded of his deep, passionate love for you, his intention to give you all things. That the God who makes the big gestures, like sending a miraculous baby into a manger 2,000 years ago, also makes the tiny, intimate gestures. That he's just waiting for you to turn off the noise, get into the silence, and be open to hearing in just a tiny whispering way how close God is with you in this moment. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you show us how you are with us in all circumstances. That in times of, of good and blessing when we're in the garden, you're there. In times of uncertainty and struggle in the wilderness, you're there. When we are surrounded by brothers and sisters of the faith, you are there. And when we are in the thick of battle fighting for our lives, you are there. But ultimately, Lord, that even in the moments of solitude and quiet, you are there. Help us learn how to recognize your presence in each and every season we go through. And Lord, I, I charge you to push through the distractions, push through the noise. Help us to see and know that you are right there as close as a whisper, just waiting to comfort and guide us in all of our moments, but especially our quiet ones. Amen.